Welcome to the next track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams, and I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. Today, we're very happy to have as a guest Stephen Huff, a world-famous pianist. I'm just looking at your profile on Hyperion Records, four Grammy nominations, eight Gramophone Awards, and you are the second guest we have had on this who has won a MacArthur Fellowship. Stephen, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Kirk. Nice to be here. Do you know who the first one was? He's in your field. Um, I don't know, actually. I should. I should think through the list. But tell me. Alex Ross. Ah, of course. Yeah. One yes, he got one in 2008. Yes, but Stephen, he was the first musician to win a MacArthur Fellowship. Wasn't that true? Yeah, I think the first performing musician. I think composers yeah. might have won it before. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was back in 2001, which was another very tempestuous time. In fact, it was. I was due to be um, sort of told about it in September uh, 2001. And, of course, that was the 9-11. So I wasn't told about it until November 2001, uh, when the world had changed pretty much in a, well, different, but in the same way as I think probably it has now changed with the present crisis that we're going through. Yeah, this is a very strange time, and because of this, we've decided to reach out and find some musicians who are affected by it. One of the first things I thought of, I live just outside Stratford-upon-Avon. I know a few people at the theater there, and with all of these closures, all these creative people are out of work. And the financial side is one thing, but the fact that they have nothing to do is another thing for many people. How many concerts have you had canceled right now? I haven't actually counted them, Kirk, but basically everything um, from just under two weeks ago. My last concert was with the Liverpool Philharmonic, uh, and then I came down, and then one by one, of course, like dominoes, they, they fell. Uh, my next concert in the book is Dallas Symphony in May, which has not yet been canceled. It's still on their website. You can still buy tickets for it. But whether or not it will happen, um, I don't think anyone knows. It depends, obviously, on the health situation, depends on political uh, changes every day. There are new rules coming out, and we, we just have to, to do what the, the philosophers have been telling us for centuries. We have to live in the present moment and not worry too much about tomorrow, because tomorrow may never happen. That's what I liked about your Guardian piece. You were quite honest with the ambivalence that that creative people can feel. It's like, well... I have all the time in the world, but I what 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 I don't feel the, the satisfaction of the the performance isn't there. The, the this interaction isn't there. Well, you know, it's a it's always been a complicated life. The the solo uh, pianist, because on the one hand, yes, you have to be ultra sensitive, ultra artistic, concerned with all of the finest details of that, and yet also you have to have you know the, the backside of a rhinoceros because you are. You're traveling, you're dealing with people at receptions, you, you're dealing with difficult hotels. You have these two sides always going. Um, you have to be ultra practical. You have to be at the airport for that plane unless you miss the concert. But on the other hand, the minute you arrive and get onto the stage, you have to be this sort of sensitive being. So what's gone away is the rhinoceros side of my life, um, <laughs> with the sensitive side. And, you know, of course... It, it's, it's all a balance, too, and, and I'm conscious around me. I live near two major hospitals in, in London, and, you know, I, I'm conscious that these places are filled with people who are bewildered and suffering and, and in, in terror, and of course, with all the, 
the, the doctors and nurses in, in terrible difficulties. But um, my own situation as, as, as an artist is that one side of my life, which is the side of stress, of, of nerves, of panic, of exhaustion, that has been swept aside. And I'm left with the artistic things. And actually, for the first time in my life, I have this luxury of being able to delve into that. Uh, I've, I've spent most of the day-to-day -day composing. And normally, I'm looking at the clock thinking, well, I, you know, I can't do anything tomorrow. And I was thinking, well, no, the third movement of my string quartet, yes, I can spend all of tomorrow working on this. I've never had that luxury in my life before. And so it's a mix. I'm, I'm loving that. Of course, it's beautiful spring weather at the moment here in London. Uh, I'm, I'm walking over to my studio, which is just a few blocks away. I don't see anyone on the street. I'm not causing anyone health issues. I'm not uh, putting my own health at risk. And I arrive there and I'm working um, with tremendous concentration and, and absorption and absolute delight for the first time in 35 years. But I'm not earning any money. Yeah. So we'll see if I have an optimistic feel in six months in when six all months, of my yeah. savings, well, or less, all of my savings drained away. Um, we don't know how this will all pan out, whether we'll get through this quicker or sooner or which countries will open up again. I know that China... Um, is is giving concerts again, and in fact, I have a tour there in early June. Um, I don't know whether I will be able to travel there, whether I'll have a quarantine, whether you know their borders will be closed or open or or what. If there's a, another spike in in um, of cases in China, they may suddenly decide to decide to go back to where they were a month ago. So it's this constant sense, I think, of uncertainty, and and the only way to live like that and remain sane is to live with it and to take it day by day. It's interesting because we recently interviewed Angela Hewitt, and what she was saying is that she had her concert schedules through July, and she had been planning to take a sabbatical from July to November. So she already had it in her mindset, and I think she said it was the first time in 32 years. You just said the first time in 35 years. Is it that tiring? I, I mean, I can't imagine, as you're going from country to country, from time zone to time zone, different uncomfortable hotels, waiting for planes, and it must be really a tiring career. There's a lot of tiring things in it. Yeah, there's no question about that. And, you know, if you're playing around 100 concerts a year, um, I mean, it doesn't take much to sort out the maths. If it takes a day to travel to and a day to travel from, there aren't many days in the year left. Um, and that's for one or two hours of music. That's right. And, you know, you also have to factor in the fact I spend maybe up to two hours a day just with office work. Yeah. So that's contracts, interviews, dealing with management, sorting out rehearsal schedules, discussing repertoire. All of that side of it takes a lot more time than people on the stage uh, in the audience um, realize, as does. And this is something I think is very important that's been brought out. There are a lot more people involved in putting on a concert than just the artists on the stage. Exactly. This is something that we all need to hold to our hearts. There are people working backstage. There are managers. There are ticket box, uh, box office people working. There are the piano tuners, you know, the person putting up the microphones. There's a whole range of people who are being affected by this um, beyond just the people that you see actually under the spotlights. Yeah, and the creative industries really are being decimated. If you think of 
less well-known musicians who are gigging in bars or small clubs. They have absolutely no income. At least you'll still have some royalties from your recordings. But other musicians, they get absolutely nothing. As I've been saying to several people recently, I, I grew up in New York, as you can probably tell from my accent, and I knew a number of actors, in small, low-level actors, and when they weren't acting, they were working in restaurants. And people can't even do that now. I, I, it's hard to imagine this sudden giving up of this life, which, which has its own inertia for someone like you. That's right. And I wouldn't overestimate the royalties that classical records make. Uh, I know. I know, I know a bit about the economics there. Day of streaming. I was told today that to cover the cost of a record would take 50 million hits on Spotify. Uh, then that's not even paying artists. That's just covering the cost of making the. And no classical record, including Yo-Yo, I don't think, is is getting those sort of clicks. So this this is um, we've never done this in recent years for the money. Um, I think in the 70s and 80s, uh, and certainly in the days of Glenn Gould. Um, the money was in recording and the concerts came after. Now it's the other way around. You know, we make records, we give them away um, because they were a promotional tool. But of course, now they're not, there's nothing to promote with them. So, Well, I'm sure you remember those album covers of Carrie with his yacht and his airplane and his sports car, right? Well, he was in the perfect time, wasn't he? Because he, he began recording in mono. And then when stereo came in, he re-recorded everything for stereo. Then he re-recorded everything for quadraphonic. And then, of course, with CD and then with DVD. He had so many shots at this, and all of them um, were royalty. So, yeah, people probably from who were uh, 70 now upwards um, had a very wonderful time, a rich time of recording. Ashkenazi, Brendel, um, Pariah, Polini. These were people who who sold in many formats over many years with the major labels. Um, but really, in, in the last 20 years, for sure, um, recording however many you sell, it's, it's not going to make you more than a month's rent. Yeah, that, that parallels pretty much with the music industry as a whole, I think. You know, you know, rock and popular music people are having the same exact problem. You, you mentioned a couple of famous pianists. Now, I, the closest area for me to go for concerts is Birmingham Town Hall and Symphony Hall. And I think the last time I was there was actually about two years ago, and Murray Pariah was playing the Hammer Clavier and something else. And Symphony Hall wasn't even half full. Now, I know that in London, he performed the same program, I think, at the Barbican, and it was sold out. But what's it like when you're going outside the big cities these days? I'm just looking at the table of contents from your book, Rough Ideas, Reflections on Music, and more. We'll talk about your writing in a few minutes. And one of the early sections is our wonderful aging audiences. How much is this changing? Well, every city is different, you know, and every night in every city is different. We can have a night when um, I was just in one of my last concert in North America was in, with Toronto Symphony just before I came back. Uh, we did three concerts. There were three packed houses in Roy Thompson Hall, uh, which is, I think, 2000 seats. So life is good in Toronto, but it was on that night. I don't know whether it's always as good as that. Um, I've certainly played concerts when we've had you know, one night's been very thin, another night's been full. I think it's just, you know, we live in an, an incredible, varied world now. There are no rules about this. People make their decisions. There's a lot of stuff going on in town, or at least there was before we, we weren't able to go out of town. Uh, but there's a lot of competition for all of this. Uh, and indeed, with uh, on the Internet, um, you know, when, when this virus first struck, um, 
you know, we, we had certain uh, streaming things going on from people's living rooms. Yeah. I imagine there are thousands of these now, and you couldn't possibly keep up with the number of them that's going on. And in a way, it's, it's a reflection of the great fruitfulness of the artistic world. But it's also quite bewildering. And I think when we come back to the concert hall, um, in fact, I was talking with a conductor about this just a couple of days ago. Will we have to rethink a lot of things about the way we put on concerts? Maybe this is a, an opportunity for us to, to reset the whole thing. Uh, and I was talking to him. Another um, a chapter in that book um, is about the interval. Yeah. About having shorter concerts and getting rid of the interval. You know, say a concert at 7 o'clock, you're out by 10 past 8, and you can go and have dinner at a reasonable hour. I think things like this, or having late-night concerts. We, This same conductor was telling me that, that he was on tour with his orchestra, and um, there was a plane problem, and they, they arrived too late for the concert. And so they did it at 10.30 at night, and the audience all came back. And they absolutely loved it. You know, they said, wow, how magical to come into the concert hall right at the end of the day before we go to bed and have this wonderful time of music. So, you know, it doesn't have to be 7.30, a two-hour concert, a 20-minute intermission every time we go onto the stage. Let's ring the changes here and see if there are different ways of doing it as well as the traditional way. Well, the problem is if someone, tra if someone lives in London, they're going to a concert, it's fine if it's an hour. If I'm traveling a couple of hours for a concert, then I feel a bit cheated if it's only an hour. Well, but what is the right amount of length? I mean, it's like... Well, it, so it depends. If, if I see someone play the Goldberg Variations, that's going to be 65 to 75 minutes. And yeah. you don't even want an encore after that, because how do you play an encore after that? If I go hear a performance of Vinta Isa, you don't want an encore. It's the same about the same length. Um, it's true that there are concerts where they are self-contained works, but if you're doing several sonatas that are 20 minutes, then isn't it natural to have an interval? And anyway, the venue wants it so they can sell the Chardonnay, right? Well, that's another issue, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and there's another thought is, is to have actually two concerts on a night. So in a sense, a longer interval between the two, and you can go to either both, or one, the first one, or the second one. I think we just need to be creative about it. And I think we've been stuck in a rut that we've always done it like this now for 100 years, and it still can work, and I still like these concerts sometimes. And, you know, if you have a big symphony and a concerto, then, of course, there's a sense in which you need a bit of, a, of an interval. You need to move the piano for once. Yeah. But let, let's just see if there are other ways of doing it which are more creative as well. What were some of the ways that that music was presented before, you know, we got into this traditional and conventional uh, performance times and lengths. I mean, what did they used to do? Well, I think from what we can see, concerts were longer than they are now, you know, and oh. they'd be much more varied. You know, you'd have a singer would do a couple of arias, a pianist would play a couple of pieces, you know, you'd have the orchestra play something, then, the, you know, an interval and then come back and have more... Of course, that reflects a different kind of life. It's very different if you've got a horse waiting outside to take you home in a carriage than it is getting back on the subway <laughs> or the tube. Um, and also, we shouldn't think that it was always wonderful in the past and now it's getting worse and worse. There was a golden age for classical music concerts, and it was probably after the First World War until about the 1970s or something like that. Um, you know, before the, the, the 20th century, only the rich could afford to go to concerts. So we certainly don't want to go back to that kind of way of doing it or to the sense that a concert is a social occasion 
um, in which you always have to dress up and, and you have a box and you have, you know, that, that whole way of thinking. But uh, it should be theater. It should be special. But it doesn't have to be done in the same way. But that also brings up the question of playing modern music in a program where people expect Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, and Mozart, and the difficulty of people to accept accepting that. It's interesting. I have a son. He's 29 years old. He grew up listening to music that I listen to, which is Bach and the Grateful Dead and Steve Reich and all sorts of things. And he has a wide taste in music. He lives in Paris. He takes advantage of of going to, I forget what's the name of the new hall up by La Villette in Paris. Right, the Philemon. The, the, yeah. Right. So he lives very close to that. And he doesn't really go to classical concerts, but he goes to the sort of modern contemporary things that aren't atonal type. Young people don't have the concept of genre that we do. And they're able to accept these different types of music more easily. Whereas dare I say, stodgy old people who subscribe to a Philharmonia, a Philharmonic um, subscription every year, they expect to see the same things. How difficult is it? And, and you as a composer, so let's talk about that. Not that many performers, uh, piano soloists, actually compose music as well. How difficult is it to get people to be open to new music? I think it depends. I mean, let's face it, the stodgy people that you mentioned are the ones who are paying for all of this. So we don't want to make enemies yeah. of them and neither should we and of course that article that you uh, the chapter you also already referenced about our wonderful aging audiences you know it's it's the same as different styles of, of concerts we, we need everybody we need to cater for everyone we people will have different tastes young people will uh, start to appreciate different music as they get older um not necessarily more conservative but uh, people change um and so we need to allow a, a, a bit of space for that. In my recital programs, I, I've tried to include uh, unusual pieces as well as standard repertoire pieces. There is room, I think, and place for a contemporary music concert. But I like to see contemporary music in the context of standard repertoire, too, because I think they feed off each other. They freshen up each other. And that's what I've tried to do generally with my recital programs. So... I said at the beginning that you do a lot of things. You're a performer, you're a composer, you're a writer, you're a painter. What don't you do? Do you not make photographs or films? Is there anything? You seem to be covering all the creative bases as if as if you're insatiable. Uh, I, well, I know I don't do photographs or films. And actually, painting is very much a hobby. I don't think of that in any serious way. But certainly writing words and music and playing the piano are the three things that I would see if not equal um, in terms of, of public perception, that's just fine. But in my own heart, those th three things have an equal place. And uh, they, they all uh, nourish each other in a way. So, you know, I found, um, you know, if I'm composing, it makes me want to practice. And if I'm practicing, I want to write about the music I'm playing and, and so on. So it, it, they're all there. And I, I don't, I'm not sort of self-consciously trying to, to tick off all these boxes of things that I, uh, creative things that I do, that they're, they're things that if I didn't do them, I'd burst. Yeah. Um, so they, they take over something that's inside me in a way that I'm not fully in control of. Yeah. You, you wrote a lot for The Telegraph, and I think a lot of those articles are what you put in your book. Is that correct? Yeah, I took that blog. Um, I wrote 600 plus articles over a number of years, and I've I took about a fifth of them and rewrote them and remodeled them, and and they they were part of this book. Um, actually, those articles were all deleted when when the blog was taken down. Um, they had oh. a, a series of blogs. I think they had thirty different bloggers, and 
they remodeled the site and they just decided to take them down. And at first I was kind of annoyed because a and was paid nothing um, over the years. But then I thought, ah, but maybe there's a book I can start working on from the notes that I had for those. So many of them, yeah, have appeared in this book. And you've written a lot of these articles when you were, what, on airplanes, in airports, sort of in between, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I often start thinking when I'm sitting in a plane or sitting at the gate in an airport or um, in hotel rooms at night. I, I made a bit of a vow to myself when I started traveling back in the 80s that I wouldn't watch television in hotel rooms um, because I'd done it a few times and I just found it usually pretty bad and a waste of time and not particularly relaxing. So I've got into a habit now of doing um, more creative things in, in those hours in, that I spend in hotels. Uh, so that's a lot of that has also come uh, gone into this book and gone into the music that I've written. Do, do you still not watch TV, say, on an iPad or something now that we have Netflix and all? No? I never – I should do because there are many great movies movies that I should be catching up with. But no, I've never watched a, a movie on my on my laptop or iPad. Well, this is your chance. Now you've got plenty of time. Tremendous discipline. <laughs> I don't think it is as discipline. I'm, I'm actually probably missing out on a lot of great stuff, but I just, I've kind of got into the way of not doing it. And um, I, I actually don't like watching television alone very much. I like it if I'm with my partner yeah. watching something. We have been watching stuff this last week. But uh, if I'm just on my own, I find it kind of depressing to sit and watch television. So It's like being in the hotel room with the TV on. It's the same thing. It's kind of uh, disorienting. It is. I, I just don't enjoy it. So I, uh, I haven't got into doing it. I can imagine, though, that, I don't know, being in China and watching old reruns of some sitcom dubbed in Chinese <laughs> would have a certain charm to it. I'll have to try it next time. <laughs> <laughs> Because you do get around and you could see some wonderfully odd TV. Yeah. Um, I, I want to just go back to the book because another one, and, and we talked about this on a previous episode, one of the chapters is, says, don't feel you have to clap between movements. And of course, the chapter before is clap between movements, please. So you're you're showing both sides. I remember a concert again in Birmingham and... They opened with one of those Beethoven serenades, a single movement, violin, and orchestra, and everyone clapped, right? And then I think it was Beethoven's first. So after the first movement, it does sound like it's ending, the first symphony. It does sound like it's ending. So people started clapping, and all the people who knew the music started shushing them. And this feels a bit off-putting when you don't know the music and, and people glaring at you because you've committed this huge faux pas. I think that's really terrible. I mean, nobody should be disgraced or shamed like that. Um, and, and mainly because it's just historically incorrect. You know, until about the 1920s, it was customary to clap after every movement, or particularly after a movement that ends with a real bang. Or, or arias and operas. Yeah. But that still happens, doesn't it? It still happens. And in the ballet, you know, if someone's done an amazing, um, you know, uh, sort of turn or whatever, you still get applause there. And of course, the jazz world, it's unthinkable after a riff of some yeah. amazing yeah. drum thing that you wouldn't applaud. I mean, it would be rude not You'd to shout. Yeah. yeah. So I think we just have to be so much looser about this. And I'm, you know, if, if people clap after the first movement of certain piano concertos, the Greek, Tchaikovsky 1, Tchaikovsky 2, Rachmaninoff 2, I'm, I'm really very happy, and I, I always turn around and, and acknowledge it. 
Actually, even if they applaud, and I don't think it's a good place to applaud, sometimes <laughs> trying to hold a mood, I would never sort of say stop or something. I mean, it's, you know, there it is, and they've applauded, and they've, they're showing appreciation. And so I, I say thank you. I think it, it, it's, um, it's crazy not to, to do that. What, what do you think about the guy who just at the end of the <laughs> symphony <laughs> – Doug's laughing because we talked about this in a previous one. The bravo guy who has to come in and yell bravo before the applause. Okay, well, you have hit on the one person that I don't like <laughs> in the concert. <laughs> and of course, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in a sense, that person comes from a snobbish viewpoint. It comes yep. from a viewpoint of, of their so-called expertise that they want to show people they know the piece. And that's just as offensive to me as the as the same person who will turn around and say, don't you realize this piece hasn't finished yet? Stop applauding you, yep. ignoramus, you know. So it's it's I think it's that side of, of classical music that is so uh, unfortunate. It's the exclusive side. It's the side of saying this is a private club and only we can be here. And maybe you can have a membership if you if you know. And that's what I, I really don't like. So. But yeah, I've been at performances like that. And you know, you can see the the, the all the soloists will show you when, when a slow piece or a soft piece is finished. You'll see in the body language when the piece is finished. And of course yeah. the other difference is that many pieces have a note and then they have rests in that final bar. And those rests have no music in them, but the piece isn't yet over. And that's, and that's the sound decaying in the hall, which is important. Absolutely. And then it's even the silence, which sometimes is written into the music, you know, that, and then the final rest of a piece will have a pause mark over it. So even that isn't quite finished. And then finally, you know, when the sound has gone away, when the mood is dissipating, then the piece is over. So uh, we should have a name for those people, shouldn't we? There should be a term. Well, we call them the Bravo guy. You, you mentioned about the silence that's written in the score. And the most extreme example of that, I remember, this is the late 1980s. I was living in Paris. And this is when Arvo Pert's first record came out on ECM. And that piece, Tabula Raza, ends with the conductor conducting silence for a bar. And if you know that piece, the way it decays into silence, almost a Beckett-like silence at the end, and then the conductor is still leading the silence. It was a chilling moment. I can, yeah, I can imagine that. One reason why I'm not always so keen to speak to the audience at the beginning of a, of a, of a performance, because I think there's something in that silence. It's like the canvas on which you put that first stroke of paint. You know, it's actually blank and empty and yet full of possibilities. And I think... It's, it's a very important dramatic moment that sets up the whole concert, that you have that moment before you come in. People spoke about Richter uh, playing the Liszt Sonata, um, and I don't know what the number was, but he counted to 12, whatever it is, a silence, before he came in with the first um, staccato G octaves. Um, that's another piece, you see, that starts with a rest. It doesn't start with a note. And so these are, yeah, this silence is a very important part of where music, um, from which it springs. It's the earth in which it's planted. So you've got this forced break in your composing. If you were to take this time to learn some new repertoire or perfect some new repertoire, I mean, you've got, what, about 60 recordings on Hyperion. What would you want to play that you haven't played or haven't recorded? Well, right now at the moment, I've got so much to do if, 
we get back to normal. And who knows when we do. But I, I kind of have to keep those pieces in shape. I mean, in China, True. Yeah. we're playing the third, fourth, and fifth concertos of Beethoven uh, in China. So I, I need to keep an eye on those. Um, I have lists first and second to do in, in London in June. So that could still happen, but let's hope it will. Um, and then Sansos 4, I'm bringing back into my fingers. I haven't played for about 20 years. That's coming up in the autumn. Um, then a new recital program and um, new CDs. I'm recording some bra, uh, some Schumann and Schubert. So those, all of this has to be kept in my mind. So I haven't quite got the luxury of a, of a, of a deliberate year off, uh, such as Angela was talking yeah. about, so that I could say, right, six months, I'm only going to work on things that I'm not planning to play just to see, um, you know, what it's like. Uh, so I'm kind of holding those things in, in tension, and I have quite a lot of music to write. Um, so until that's really underway, I'm, I'm also a little bit anxious to, to think that this is too free this time. Yeah. Uh, how far ahead is your schedule plan? Two years, three years, more? Yeah, I mean, I've got things in 2022, which we're, we're, we're looking at now. Um, so I, I want to keep those um, in, in, in sight as well. Um, yeah. And, you know, even things coming into the diary later this year, I was quite surprised to, to have a recital um, in Utah in September that, that had come in when I'm already there with the Utah Symphony. So I like the fact that we are being optimistic about this because we can't give up, you know, and, and, and our management. I also, my manager wrote to me today and she said, thank you so much, because on a radio broadcast I'd said that also the artist managers are, are suffering from this because... You know, they're not getting commission from the concerts that we're not playing. But on the other hand, we need them to book the concerts for when we are back playing again. So yeah. both of us sort of holding these these plates spinning in the air and not quite sure, you know, we don't want to let them crash to the ground just yet. Okay. Stephen Huff, thank you very much for taking time to speak to us. I hope you enjoy this time off and I hope it doesn't last too long. And stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you. You too, Kirk. Really nice to chat. It's time now for us to report on our next tracks. Kirk, you may. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the 28th of March is Piano Day. This is because it's the 88th day of the year. There are 88 keys on a piano. Apparently, this was conceived by pianist and composer Niels Fromm. And I did notice on Twitter the hashtag Piano Day, so it has been picked up by other artists and other musicians, and there were events scheduled all around the world. Obviously, most or all of them are canceled. I'll put a link in the show notes to the Piano Day website. But Nils Fromm released a new record for Piano Day. It's called Empty. It's very short. It's about 36 minutes. On his record label's website, the label is Erase Tapes, he explains that it was conceived of just before he broke his thumb and composed the similarly intimate solo piano album, Screws. Empty is a soothing vessel of eight simple and serene pieces originally recorded as a music to a short art film he shot with his friend and film director, Benoit Toulmonde. Since this record came out, I have been listening to this pretty much on repeat. This is the record we need right now. This is the music, this calm, peaceful, thoughtful music that's not too demanding, that's just there to relax. And, uh, you know, I hate the whole trend of classical record labels saying, oh, yes, this classical music is relaxing. 
And Nils Fromm isn't totally classical. It's a lot more like Harold Budd's piano music, but this is a wonderfully relaxing album. It's only 36 minutes, so listen to it at least twice to appreciate it. I think I've listened to it, I don't know, more than a dozen times in a few days. Doug, what about you? Well, something a little incongruous with the uh, subject of our interview today, but I I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, that Adam Schlesinger had been uh, taken by the coronavirus. Adam Schlesinger founded the band Fountains of Wayne, which was very popular in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. They were um, one of the many bands that really were part of a huge subgenre of uh, indie and alt rock, uh, known as power pop. Um, they were Fountains of Wayne were like bands like Nerf Herder and Bowling for Soup and Gob and Size Fourteen and, and quite a number of others. But Fountains of Wayne had a tremendously big hit with Stacy's Mom, which is a very funny song, and it's a very cute song. It's a very touching song, and those are the types of songs that Adam Schlesinger wrote. Um, a lot of these power pop bands did songs about, you know, ironic male teen angst. And I always found them very amusing and also very relatable because being the nerd that I was, these are exactly the sorts of stories that, that I could probably tell about my teenage years. But anyway, I was surprised to find out that he did a lot more than just Fountains of Wayne in that he went on and did stuff on, on TV and movies. And in particular, he, he did the music for the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I did not know, which I've seen a few episodes of, and it's, it's, uh, it's quite slick. Uh, but now that I know that he was part of that, I'm going to have to binge watch it all. But anyway, the album that I'm going to recommend, uh, if you want to find out what all the excitement's about, is an album by Fountains of Wayne called Welcome Interstate Managers. That's the one with Stacy's mom on it, probably their most popular album. It, it, I highly recommend it. Welcome Interstate Managers by Fountains of Wayne. This was episode number 174 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. We recorded our interview with Stephen Huff on Friday, March 27, 2020. Your comments on any episode are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. All you got to do is visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review... Pass the word along to your friends and family on social media. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.